Father, thank you for this time. I suspect that when we look back in eternity to these moments in time, we will see with a whole different perspective that you are truly with us in ways far greater, far deeper than we are remotely aware. You've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. You are the very strength of our heart. Even though our flesh and our heart may fail, the psalmist says, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, we believe, we trust you. We ask now that you would strengthen our hearts, bring healing, bring direction, bring wisdom through your word, bring transformation through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for each person that is here, and Lord, may you be blessed as we open your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an elderly couple that were sitting by a warm, crackling fire one evening. The husband looked over to his wife, had a romantic thought in his mind, and he said, you know, after 50 years, I found you to be tried and true. The wife was a little hard of hearing, so she said, what? And he repeated, he said, well, after 50 years, I found you to be tried and true. She replied, well, after 50 years, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> now, I don't know if that story is true, but I hope it's not your experience. You see, God designed marriage to be a lifelong, fulfilling relationship. But it requires some work, doesn't it? And it requires wisdom. And that's why God gave us the seventh commandment in the list of the Ten Commandments, which says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This morning, I want us to look at keeping your marriage pure. Because nothing will destroy a family faster than adultery. And God says, this is my protection plan. I don't want you to commit adultery. It will destroy your life. If you want to build a strong family, then keep your marriage pure. Now, I recognize this is a sensitive topic. And for some of you hearing the word adultery brings back pain, brings back memories of shame or perhaps guilt. Let me just say up front, this message is not a message of condemnation. I'm not here to condemn you. This message is not to resurrect the past. If you've come before God and you've asked him to forgive you of your sins, the Bible says he is faithful and he will forgive you of your sins. This is not a message of condemnation, but rather a mes message of compassion. It's a message, if you will, to protect you from going over that cliff. And so that you won't. So I want to look at keeping our marriages pure today. I want to talk through at least three different or four different questions about marriage and keeping it pure. First of all, what is adultery? Second, why is this commandment so important to us today? 
And three, how can I protect my marriage? And four, what if, what if I fail? What if I fail? I want to look at these four questions with you this morning. First of all, what is adultery? Well, the Bible talks about adultery in a number of different ways, at least four different ways that I see. First of all, adultery is unfaithfulness. You shall not commit adultery, God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Don't commit adultery. There's an old joke that says, as Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he said, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. He said, the good news is I got him down to 10. But the bad news is adultery stays. Now, that's a very telling joke, isn't it? Because sadly enough, one of the hardest commandments for people to keep is this commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Do you know that one study said that 50% of men admitted that they'd had an affair on their wife? 35% of the women admitted that they'd had an affair on their husband. God gave us this commandment to protect our marriage from the ugly wounds that scar people because of adultery. One author said it so, so well. He says, adultery threatens the very building block, the very foundation of civilization that the Ten Commandments seek to create. He's right. You want a pure marriage? You want a strong marriage? And protect yourself from unfaithfulness. A second way the Bible talks about adultery is fornication. Now, I'm going to be very candid with the language I'm going to use here today. And if that offends you, let me apologize up front, but I'm going to be very candid. Because you need to hear this the way it is. What is fornication? It's sex outside of marriage. Today, this has become so normal that everybody thinks it's okay. And yet, God says, don't let the peer pressure tell you otherwise. Because when you give in to fornication, when you give in to sex outside of marriage, there's always a price to pay. The Bible is very clear about sex outside of marriage. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. That word fornications there is pornea. We get the word pornography from that. That gives you an idea of what fornication is. Thefts, false witnesses, slanders. The Bible says elsewhere, flee from immorality. Don't walk away from it. Don't simply turn your back. Run from it when it comes into your life. Flee from immorality. God says don't do it. Why? Why? Because you see, God is the one who invented sex. Did you know that? So often we have this idea that sex is dirty, it's bad, it's no good. That's not true. God invented sex. But he designed sex to happen only in the place of a marriage. And he's also the one who invented marriage. He invented marriage and sex to be together, not opposite or different from the other. So therefore, God says, don't commit adultery or it'll bring disaster into your life. Some people will think, you know, if I, if I uh, just commit fornication, then I'll have freedom. I can do what I want. That's like cutting the string from a kite or taking a train from its tracks. You may be free momentarily, but disaster is absolutely inevitable. So what happens when we commit fornication? A couple of things, I think. One is that we lack respect for the person that you're having the sexual relationship with. And nobody wants to marry someone they don't respect. 
This is especially true of men more than women. Men will go to bed with a woman. But if he doesn't respect her, guess what? She may think she's won him because he's gone to bed with her, but the reality is because she's gone to bed with him outside of marriage, he doesn't respect her. He doesn't want to marry her. You lose respect. There's another problem with this. When you have multiple partners before you get married, guess what happens when you go into a marriage relationship? You take all those memories of all those partners into that relationship and you begin to compare your spouse with all those partners. And immediately, dissatisfaction enters into that relationship. The best way to keep your marriage pure is don't have sex outside of marriage. Fornication. A third is lust. Jesus literally gets to the heart of this when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, Jesus says that adultery is mental before it is physical. And a lot of people think there's nothing wrong with undressing someone in their minds and having lustful thoughts toward them. Jesus says, don't be so gullible. Where do you think that burning lust comes from. It comes from your thoughts. That adultery is first mental before it is physical. Now, most of us would agree with this, don't you? We'd say, yeah, Jesus is right. But the problem is this. Our problem is we don't know how to stop these lustful thoughts that come into our lives. We're tempted with lust from time to time. And By the way, can I just be very candid with you? There's not one of you here that has not been tempted by lust. And if you say you're not, then you're a liar. Every single one of us. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like us. Jesus knows what that's like. And all of us have been tempted by it. The question is, what do you do with those temptations? You see, it's not a sin to be tempted. The sin is when you give in to the temptation. That's the problem. So just because you've been tempted does not mean that you've sinned before God, but rather you simply are a part of a fallen world and you've felt the temptation that everyone else feels, even Jesus himself. But it does not mean you've sinned until you cross that line of giving in to that temptation. Jesus said, adultery happens to the heart. It is mental before it is, in fact, physical. So the question for you and I is, how do we keep these Thoughts out of our mind. What do we do? How do we keep them from controlling us? Well, first of all, what's the first thing we do when we have temptation come in our minds? Typically, we say, you know what? I just stop thinking that way. I got to stop thinking that way. Can't think that way. What happens when you do that? That's all you can do is think about it. Try this for a moment. This week, I was sitting in my office, and I was thinking, you know, have you ever had one of those Big, fat, golden brown, fluffy Cinnabon cinnamon rolls. I mean, lathered in butter and frosting and cinnamon with a cup of coffee. It makes your mouth water, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, stop thinking about that. Just stop thinking about that cinnamon roll. Don't think about it anymore. Stop thinking about it. You can't, can you? You see, the way we resist temptation is by replacing it in our thought life, not simply saying no to it. That's what Jesus shows us in Matthew chapter 4. 
in the great passage where Jesus is tempted by Satan himself. Four different times Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts him. And every time Satan tempts him with a lie, Jesus responds, replacing the lie with God's truth. In verse 3, it says that Satan comes to Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And four times Satan comes at him, and four times Jesus replaces the lie of Satan with the truth of God's word. That's how you deal with temptation in your life. You take God's word, God's promises, and you replace the lie with the truth of God's word. That's what Jesus is showing us. Lust, it happens to us. But the way we need to deal with it is to replace it, not simply resist it. You see, unfortunately, we live in a society where we're not very discriminative of the things we watch, are we? Just think about, I look at my computer on a daily basis. As I look at my email, on the side of my email, there's, there's, there are ads that flash all the time. And oftentimes, I have to go into those ads and say, I don't want to watch this ad anymore. I don't want to see this ad anymore because it's inappropriate. What it is is soft porn. All you have to do is watch TV. Now, you may not be into hard pornography, and I hope you're not. But you know what? We are inundated on a daily basis with soft pornography. One study said that 70% of all sexual relationships that you see on TV are outside of marriage. We are literally inundated from every direction today with inappropriate temptation, with lust. Some people have gone so far as to get rid of their TVs. You can do those things, and those are good. But the reality is this. The way you resist temptation is to replace it with God's word. Don't sit there and look at it and say, I'm going to resist this. I'm going to resist this just a little more. I'm going to resist this just a little more. Stop it. Flee immorality, the Bible says. Shut it off. Watch something else. A fourth way the Bible talks about adultery is divorce. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, he says, Anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I recognize that there are a number of well-meaning Christians that have different views of what Jesus is saying here. But the bottom line, Jesus says this. He says, divorce outside of marital unfaithfulness is wrong. That's what he's saying. So the point is God says the divorce outside of marital unfaithfulness is wrong. Did you know that as little as three years ago, 2019, that all 50 states in our nation now have a no-fault divorce? That is, you can divorce your wife, you can divorce your husband for any reason, simply because you want to. America has had the highest rate of divorce in the 20th century than all other nations. One of the things I'd like to share with couples in premarital counseling, which I require of every marriage I do, is I require that they learn to take the word divorce out of the vocabulary. Because you see, the moment you get into argument, the moment you get into a tiff in your marriage relationship, by the way, how many of you have had an argument, a tiff, or something that only a few of you probably have? So this only applies to some of you. The rest of you can just skip this. 
The reality is this, that when we allow divorce to be a part of our vocabulary, guess what we're doing? We're creating a back door in our marriage. When it gets too tough, when it gets too difficult, we know we have that back door, and we think, you know what, I can always divorce this person. The problem with that is this, divorce prevents people from working through the real problems and overcoming them in their marriage. Let's just say, for instance, you say, you know what, the way out of this marriage is divorce. Now, I'm talking about not marital unfaithfulness. I'm talking about something you say, you know what, he just comes home late every night, or I don't know what it is. You can make it up whatever you want, whatever excuse you want. Remember, we live in a no-fault nation. You say, you know what, I'm just done with this relationship. And you say, I'm going to divorce this person. Pretty easy. And you maybe feel good for a little while. It's interesting how many couples I've talked to over the years as they begin to wade through this nasty and ugly and painful process of divorce. They tell you again and again up front, I'm never getting married again. I don't want to be involved with another person ever, ever again. I'm so sick of this. And I just smile. I go, who are you lying to? You're not fooling me. Because I know when that pain wears off, your eyes are going to start roving. And you're going to think, who could I spend my life with? Who could I spend time with? Guess what happens when you get remarried the second time? The percentages go up of divorce. And when you get married the third time, the percentages go even higher of divorce. Why? I've done counseling with couples that have been through divorces in their lives. What happens is we bring all the baggage, all the pain, all the unresolved issues into that new relationship. And it becomes harder and harder to have the kind of marriage that we want. Divorce. So why is this so important? Why is this so important to God? Because he understands the pain and the ruin that it causes in our lives. You see, the problem with the media today is this, and you all know this. The media says, you know what, it's okay to have an affair. It's okay to fornicate. But they only tell you one side of the coin, don't they? They only tell you the side of pleasure. They don't tell you the flip side of that same coin. The pain, the rejection, the betrayal, the shame, the guilt that people go through when adultery takes place in a marriage relationship. I want you to do this for me with a moment, with me for a moment. I want you to imagine, if you dare step there in your mind, imagine the consequences were you to give in to adultery. Imagine looking your wife in the eyes. By the way, if you don't think she's not going to know, she'll know. By the way, if you don't think he won't know, he'll know. Imagine looking your spouse in the eyes and admitting that you had an affair on them and the painful consequences that brings into that relationship. Imagine looking your children in the face, trying to explain to them, why are my bags packed? Why am I leaving home? Imagine what it would do to your friends. Imagine what it would do to your relationship with the one who redeemed you on the cross. Think about the consequences. You see, the world only tells you one side because that's all they want you to see because it is a snare of the devil himself to destroy your life. But God says, I want you to think through the whole picture. 
think through the ugly consequences and how it will destroy your life. For your own good, God says, don't do this. But let me take it a step further. Let me insert a prophetic footnote, if you will, why this is so important to our times today. We are currently witnessing across our nation the very wrath of God for disobeying his word. Because we've turned our backs on God now for so many years, our nation is experiencing the wrath of God. Let me explain this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. It is no secret, as you look across our nation today, that many are saying there is something terribly wrong in this nation. And we might blame it on politics, we might blame it on all kinds of things, but the bottom line is that we as a nation have defiantly turned our backs on God. And we are now experiencing the very wrath of God because we have been suppressing the truth, God's truth, in unrighteousness. Not too long ago, I was listening to Dr. David Reagan, who is a prophecy expert, well-known prophecy communicator with Lamb and Lion Ministries, and he says there are actually five different kinds of God's wrath. One, he says, there is consequential wrath. This is reaping what you sow. There is cataclysmic wrath. This is remedial judgment. This is judgment that God brings on a different part of the world for turning their back on him. Natural disasters. Three, he says, is what is called abandonment wrath. And that's where we are today as a nation. He reminds us of Samson, whom God abandoned. God blessed him with enormous superhuman strength. But when he refused to give up his adulterous relationship with Delilah, guess what? God abandoned him by pulling his uh, blessing away from him. Dr. Reagan rightfully says that is where we are at today. We are experiencing God's abandonment of blessing and protection on our nation. Fourth, he says there is eschatological wrath. This is the wrath that the world will experience during the seven years of tribulation intensively. But it's eschatological, it's worldwide. And fifth, there is eternal wrath. This is the wrath that every person who rejects Jesus Christ will experience. God's eternal abandonment, God's eternal separation, God's eternal wrath. Now, what's interesting in Romans chapter 1, Paul doesn't stop there. In verses 24 to 31, he talks about what God's abandonment wrath looks like. And three times in these verses, 24 through 31, he says, God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. And each successive giving over is worse than the one before. Let me just read them for you. The first one that God gives them over is to immorality. And that is where we are at in our nation. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This word impurity literally means a sexual kind of sin, an uncleanness. 
Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. He said, well, when did God give us over to immorality? During the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, known as the sexual revolution. We saw the entire nation change dramatically through this sexual revolution. There was an increased acceptance of sex outside of marriage, pornography, legalized abortion. It was during the same time, if you remember, 1963, that our nation said, we don't want God in our classrooms anymore. We don't want God's word in our classrooms. We don't want God's prayer in our classrooms. And they rejected God from our classrooms. The moment that happened, if you look at history, you see crime and violence and drugs and divorce skyrocket. Why? Because God is abandoning this nation. You cannot walk with God and think that somehow you can live any old way that you want. If you're going to walk with God, you must walk close under the umbrella of His protection. You cannot live however you want and think that God's going to bless you. The Jews made the same mistake before the disaster in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the entire nation of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They believed, because they had the temple, that they could live any old way they want, and God would bless them, God would protect them, but God said no. And the entire temple was destroyed, and they were exiled into Babylon for 70 years. God abandoned His people. We are foolish to think that somehow... America is too great to fall. We have abandoned God. And the sexual revolution opened the door to increased acceptance to homosexuality. We rapidly degenerated from immorality to homosexuality. And that's exactly what the second giving over is that Paul talks about in verse 24. He says, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of women and burned in their desire toward one another. Folks, we've seen a widespread acceptance of homosexuality has become the norm in our nation. Ironically, even though there are very few, percentage-wise, who actually practice homosexuality, we've given wide acceptance and tolerance to this sin. We have children now in school who are being told, you can be whatever gender you want. That is one of at least 64 different genders. If that's not confusing enough. Someone told me yesterday that they just heard of a young girl in Coeur d'Alene. She'd been groomed to go through a sex change procedure without her parents' consent. We are seeing homosexuality widespread. So you move from immorality to homosexuality, and then the third giving over that Paul says is depravity. Verse 28 and following, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. 
He gave them over to a depraved mind. A mind that no longer recognizes or differentiates between right and wrong. Another word for this would be insanity. This explains, it's the only explanation of what we're seeing happening in our nation today that we could not possibly ever believed would happen before, yet we're seeing it happen before our very eyes. We're seeing across our nation, defund the police, defund the police. Do what? That's idiocy. Releasing violent criminals before they finished their imprisonment on the streets. Reparations for slavery. Now reparations for homosexuals. Releasing criminals without bail. Turning a blind eye on the mass lootings, violent rioting. All the while, shouting down the voices of reason, the voices of truth, is saying, this is not right. How else do you explain? How else do you explain that we are sending billions of dollars to Iran, the Iranian deal? How else do you explain that? We say, well, that's going to that's keep them from having nuclear arms. That's called a depraved mind. The reality is what we have done by doing that is we've now set ourselves against Israel. And God says, I'm going to bless my people and those who curse them, I will curse. How else do you explain that now we have a Supreme Court justice nominee who cannot even tell you, no, will not tell you, what a woman is. That is called depravity. And that is where we're at today. We've gone from sanity to utter insanity. How else do you explain that? Except that God gave them over from immorality to homosexuality now to depravity. Now the good news about all this is this. The worse it gets, the closer the end comes. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, He said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Dr. Andy Woods, renowned prophecy expert, says this, the Jewish tradition pervasively believes that right before the flood came, there was an increased outbreak of homosexuality, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. The good news is this, folks. The closer, the worse things get, the closer the end comes for you and for me. And I believe the Bible clearly teaches that you and I have been spared from the very wrath of God. You see, the Bible teaches this, that when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And that word propitiation, you know what it means? It means propitiation. It means God's wrath is satisfied against our sin. Meaning this, 
that when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that is when you cross the line and you say, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. I'm placed my full-on trust in Jesus as my Savior, my Lord. The Bible says the wrath of God is passed over. You've gone from death now into life. And you no longer need to fear the wrath of God. You've been delivered from the wrath of God. When the tribulation comes, it will be the unleashing of the very wrath of God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 says, when is that wrath going to come? And who's it going to come from? It's going to come when Jesus is on the throne, is going to open that first seal, and he is the one who's going to begin the tribulation, opening that first seal of seven seals. When that wrath comes... God will pour out his wrath with greater intensity throughout the seven years against a world that has rejected him and his son, Jesus Christ. But as for you, as for me, John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, if we believe in Jesus Christ, and that believe right there, pastuo means to put your full faith in, your full trust, your full weight. When I believe in Jesus Christ, God says, I have passed from death into life. I no longer need to worry about the wrath of God in my life. But those, it says in John chapter 3, verse 36, who are not believers, the very wrath of God abides on them right now. You see, the good news is this. God may take us home at any moment. And while the world is eating and drinking, giving in marriage, acting like it'll go on like it's always gone on, or so they think. God will say, children, it's time to come home. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following, that Jesus will descend in the clouds. He's not coming to the earth. He'll descend in the clouds, and he is going to call, and we're going to go up, and we're going to, re- we're going to be with the Lord, it says, forever. And it says, those who are dead in Christ will come with him. At the very end of that verse, in verse 18, it says, the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning they will be the first ones to receive their glorified bodies. A group of pastors were once asked, talking about this, talking about the rapture, and one pastor said, you know what? My church is going to be the very first to go in the rapture. And the other pastors looked at him and said, that's kind of prideful, isn't it? He said, no, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I'm not saying that about you. (laughs) The fact is, the rapture is going to happen. It is imminent. It can happen at any moment. And God is going to take us home. And we are closer now than we've ever been as we watch immorality, homosexuality, and now depravity take over our nation. If this frightens you, don't let it frighten you. Let it cause you to turn your trust in Jesus Christ because he alone is the answer. I believe we're there, folks. So why is this command so important? Because it serves as guardrails to protect our marriage and to protect our nation. So let me ask another question. How then can I protect my marriage? We may not see this nation turn around. The only way this nation will turn around is if this nation, that is you and me, at a grassroots level, all the way up to the White House, repent and turn back to God. That's the only way this nation will turn around. But in the meantime, you have a task, you have a calling, and that calling is to keep your marriage pure. 
So how do you do it? Let me give you several practical ways. One is to build your faith. Build your faith. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge. If you don't have a plan to intentionally grow in your faith, then get one. Get involved in a life group. Come to church. Start reading your Bible. Start reading it on a daily basis. Let me give you a very simple plan of how you should read God's Word. First of all, begin with a book. Maybe begin with the Gospel of John or begin with the book of Romans. And before you sit down to read it, go before your Father and say, Lord, will you open my eyes? Will you give me insight and understanding as to what your Word says and how I need to apply it to my life? And then when you read, don't simply read. Listen. This is God's Word to you. Listen. Listen to his voice as he speaks into your life. And when you read, don't read so you get done and go on with your life. Read reflectively. Read meditatively. Think about what God is saying. And you'll be surprised because you've asked God to guide you that the Holy Spirit will illumine, that is, he'll make his word known to you of what he is saying to you. Read his word on a daily basis. Pray before you do so. Throughout the day, if you get a chance to read God's word more, read it some more. But here's what I encourage you to do. I challenge you. If you have devotions in the morning, a quiet time with God, maybe start with five minutes. Take an hour, whatever you've got. But as you're going throughout the day, ask yourself, what did I read this morning? What did God tell me as I read his word? And if you can't recall what that was, then you're like the man that James says who looks at his face in a mirror and forgets what he saw. I know sometimes that's a good idea for a lot of us, isn't it? We want to forget what we saw, especially in the morning. But that's not what James is saying. He's saying that when you forget God's law, you're forgetting the importance of what he is saying. Guard your faith by building your faith. Decide that you'll honor God with your life. One of the things I love to do in premarital counseling is I like to bring to couples a verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. It says, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Typically, we think of marriage as being two people that come together. The Bible says that's like two cords coming together. But those two cords will quickly unravel if they're left to themselves. But a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. That third strand, because God is the one who invented marriage, he wants to be a part of your marriage, he's that third strand that holds it together. And when you intentionally grow in your faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and your relationship with one another, that's that third strand that protects and retains the health of your marriage. Grow in your faith. Second, establish guidelines. Establish guidelines. Let me be very practical here with you. Both I want to talk to the single and to those of you who are married. If you're single, can I just tell you, don't go into the home of the opposite sex and spend time with them. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? 
Because you're opening yourself up to all kinds of temptation. If you want to be alone with them, go someplace where you can be alone with them, but you have accountability in the public's eye. Don't go to their house. Don't try to spend time alone with them. Think about what you're doing in that relationship. Plan ahead. Don't blindly blunder into a relationship thinking, you know what, this is such a great relationship, and not think about the consequences of the choices you're making and how you're spending time with that person. If you're married, I don't even need to say this, do I? Yes, I do. If you're married, don't spend time alone with the opposite sex. Don't take them to lunch. Don't give them rides in your car. Don't go into their home alone. Don't do it. Set up accountability with your spouse. My wife knows my schedule. She knows where I'm at, what I'm doing. Most of the time. There have been some late nights where I said, well, I'm really at the office. But the reality is this. I have checks and accountability in my life. At any time, my wife or even my girls want to look at my computer, they can do that. They can go through everything in that computer. They can take my cell phone, look through everything in my cell phone. Do you know that the one of the greatest places of hiding pornography for guys in particular is their cell phones. You'd be surprised at the percentage of men who have pornography on their phones. Don't do it. Build accountability into your life. Let your spouse know what you're doing. Why? Because you want to build trust in that relationship, and that trust is essential to protecting the purity of your relationship. Years ago, my wife and I had a guideline that we came up with, or that was given to us, and that is this, and this is just, just good wisdom. There are going to be times when your spouse may have a friend of the opposite sex. Now, I'm not saying that's a license or liberty to go spend time alone with them, go have lunch with them, or ride alone in the car. Don't do that. What I am saying is this. We reserve the right as a couple that if I'm working with someone and my wife says, you know what, I'm just not comfortable, I'd rather you wouldn't spend time with that person. I do not have the right to say, you're just, you're just worrying about stuff. Don't worry about it. We agreed a long time ago that she has the right to speak into my life, and I must respect that whether I agree with it or not. It's mutually true for her as well. You see, what you're really doing is respecting and protecting that marriage relationship. It's just a wise and good guideline to build into your marriage. Establish guidelines. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with all those who call in the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Third, guard your affections. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23 says. Jesus has already told us that adultery is mental before it is physical. Now, as Christians, we know we shouldn't cross over that physical line of adultery, but many, many are willing to take up residence on the mental side of it. You see, just because you're not having a physical affair with someone doesn't mean you can't have a mental affair with them. Well, you say, what's, what's an emotional affair? An emotional affair is when you're looking to someone outside of your marriage to meet your emotional needs. 
you start looking for opportunities to be with that person. You find yourself, when you get up in the morning, going, hmm, I wonder if they'll like this shirt. No, maybe that shirt. You begin to make decisions based on what you think will win the approval or get you closer to that person in your relationship. And you begin to have what is called an emotional affair. You look forward to being with them, to talking with them. And there's a sense of electrifying excitement to be with them. Can I tell you what? That electrifying sense of excitement will go away and end in disaster if you decide to pursue an adulterous relationship with that person. The reality is this. When you begin to find yourself going down that path of having an emotional affair with someone, let me tell you two things. One, you cannot trust your emotions. Can I tell you that right now? You cannot trust your emotions. Your emotions will not always tell you the truth. Would you just say that with me? My emotions will not always tell me the truth. Would you say that? My emotions will not always tell me the truth. Do you believe that? Because your emotions will be very powerful. My emotions will not always tell me the truth. I can't trust them. And there are going to be times when you're going to have a relationship with somebody and the emotions are going to be so powerful, so electrifying, it's going to feel so right. How could it be wrong? And God says, don't. Don't trust your emotions. Trust my word. Protect your marriage. Guard your affections. So expose them to God. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. And replace them with God's truth in your life. Someone once said that if the grass is green on the other side of the fence, then it's time to water the lawn on your own side. Guard your affections. Make time for romance. Just set up times where you have regular time together, regular dates. Get away together. Find things you both enjoy doing together and invest in them. Do things that will protect and nurture that relationship, that friendship with one another. You see, let me just tell you a little secret. Can I tell you a secret? You ready for this? This is going to just blow you away. You'll say, I've never, ever heard that before. You ready for this? Did you know that men are very different than women. <laughs> that doesn't stop there. Did you know that women are very different than men? Did you know that? That is probably like amazing to a lot of us, isn't it? You're not as wild as I thought you would be. <laughs> we know that, don't we? Men and women are different. And we're not simply planets apart. Sometimes we're galaxies apart in our differences with one another. Dr. Willard Harley wrote a book once called His Needs, Her Needs, and he identified through thousands of couples the five top needs that most men have and the five top needs that most women have. Now, I'm going to read through these lists, and I want you to see these, the corollary similarities here, the parallel. So just see how close they are. You ready? So here are the five top needs that most men have. Number one, sexual fulfillment. Number two, recreational companionship. Number three, an attractive spouse. Number four, domestic support. Number five, admiration. Now, here's the list of the five top needs that most women have. Number one, affection. Number two, conversation. Number three, honesty and openness. Number four, financial support. Number five, family commitment. 
Now, did you see the incredible similarities between those two lists? I mean, they were really close, weren't they? You see, the reality is men are very different than women, and women are very different than men. And here's what happens commonly in most marriages. We are not prepared for marriage when we go into marriage. That's why we have premarital counseling, and even that isn't always good enough. But here's where the ironies that happens in marriage. When a man goes into marriage, he thinks, the needs of my wife are just like my needs. And the woman, when she goes into marriage, she thinks, the needs of my husband are just like my needs. No wonders we have such difficult time of adjusting in our marriages and protecting our marriages because we don't realize right off the bat we're very, very different. Now, why are we so different? Why are women so... I didn't say they're wrong. I said, why are women so different? And why are men so... I didn't say wrong. I said, why are men so different? Because, you see, God created your spouse to be a gift, one to the other, to complement, not complicate. And that's the problem. As we look at those differences, we say, that complicates my life. It's not what I want. And God says, you dummy. Don't you realize she is exactly what you need because you're not as smart as you think you are. And he says, you dummy. Don't you think that your husband is there because he's a gift from me to you to complement your life? And when you begin to look at those differences as complementary, not as complications, it radically changes how you see that marriage. My wife has always, I'll just tell you, she's always been smarter than me. Just is. Her GPA, 4.0. All the way through. Undergrad, grad school, 4.0. She's smarter more than just that. I would study for hours and hours and hours and hours, and I would miss inevitably three or four or five or six questions. She would study for two hours and ace the test every single time. She's smarter than I am. That's all there is to it. I recognize that. I don't fight against that. I realize you're smarter than I am. Why don't you tell me the answer to this? <laughs> Men, you'd be surprised how incredibly smart your wives are. And wives, I think you'd be incredibly surprised how smart your husbands really are. Can I give you three ingredients in your marriage that you need? You ready? Would you write these down? I see some of you already getting ready to write this down. The first one is this, time, time. The second one is this, time. The third one, if you miss the first two, you're in trouble. The third one is this, time. You must spend time nurturing that friendship with your spouse. He or she is your best friend. And you must spend time with that person to invest in, to nurture the friendship that you want. Don't let your career, don't let your hobbies, don't let your friends, don't let your children, don't let all those things get in the way. There is a place for them. I recognize that. But if you don't intentionally nurture with time that friendship and your relationship, you're going to miss out on what God intended that marriage to be in a fulfilling relationship. Time. Spend time. Well, the final question is this. What if I fail? The Bible is very clear that sexual relationship outside of marriage 
is serious business. It's devastating. But it is not unforgivable. In John chapter 8, John paints a picture which is powerful. Jesus is at the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees drag this woman who's been caught in adultery. They drag her to Jesus' feet and they throw her in a heap at Jesus' feet. And they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. You see, their whole intent was to trick Jesus, to get him in a place where he couldn't escape. Now, I find that passage to be very ironic, ironic because as I read that passage, it says they bring the woman before Jesus, but where's the man? As far as I remember, it takes two to tangle, right? But there's no mention of the man there. But they bring this poor woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. They drag her before Jesus. They throw her at his feet. And they say, now what are you going to do with her? The law of Moses says that she must be put to death. And they know that if he agrees with that, that he will then be accused of being an insurrectionist. That is, only the Romans had the power to put somebody to death. Therefore, he would commit civil disobedience against the Romans. He's stuck. Now, if he disagrees and says she shouldn't be put to death, he will lose all respect and all credibility of upholding God's law before God's people. And as far as they're concerned, they've got him. There is no way out for Jesus. When you read through the passage, Jesus is completely unperturbed. He simply kneels down and he begins to draw in the dust on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Some people think he wrote out Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Others say what he was writing were the names of the bystanders who were themselves guilty of adultery. We don't know what he wrote. But it says in John chapter 8, they continued to persist. They kept continuing to bug him. So what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Finally, he stood up and he said to them, go ahead and stone her. Whoever among you is without sin, let him be the one who throws the first stone. And then he knelt back down again and began to draw on the dust. John says there was an awkward silence. You could hear stones dropping all over the place. And the older began to leave first, then the younger. And there was this awkward shuffle of feet as they left Jesus' presence with this woman at his feet. Then Jesus looks at her and he says, where'd your accusers go? I don't accuse you either, he said. Go and leave your life of sin. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us, I think, two important things. If adultery is a part of your life, whether emotional or physical, stop. Stop. Do not trust your emotions. Your emotions may scream that you're in love with this person. You must have this person. You'll never have satisfaction unless you have this person. That's a lie. Stop. Turn away from it. It doesn't simply mean that you feel sorry. But rather you acknowledge the wrong and you turn away from it. You start replacing the lie with God's truth. Don't go back. Don't look back. 
Second, after you repent, is you receive God's forgiveness. No matter how great your failure is, God's grace is greater still. Did you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all your sin? Do you know that? Do you believe that? You'd be amazed how many Christians I come across who say, you know, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for all my sins, but there are just some sins I'm really struggling with. I'm not sure he could forgive me. Yet the Bible repeatedly teaches us, again, Jesus died for all of our sins, not just some, but for all. And if you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, then take him at his word. He has forgiven you. You've repented from what you're doing, and you've asked his forgiveness. Now go on with your life. It does not mean there won't be consequences. It does not mean it'll be easy. But it means by God's grace you can find healing and you can find renewal in your life. What if you're still struggling with feelings of condemnation and guilt and shame? It could be one of two things. One, you haven't really left that relationship. You're still having an emotional affair. Or two, it could mean that you've not forgiven yourself. You've accepted God's forgiveness, but you have not accepted forgiveness for yourself. You must replace that lie with God's truth. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. When you trust Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he died on the cross for all of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And you cannot enter God's heaven with any sin. And God says, I sent my son to die for all of your sin. That's why Jesus came. This is not a message to condemn you. It's not a message to make you grovel in your guilt, to resurrect the pain. That's not my intent. But to say the reality of the world that we live in as a place where adultery is the norm. But it is a lie. And the way out of that lie is Jesus Christ. There is healing, there is forgiveness, and there is a new life. But you must repent and trust him. Will you pray with me? Father, I recognize that as we enter into this very difficult and even painful topic, We thank you for the conviction of your word that reaches deep into our hearts and our souls themselves. Lord, I pray that as I come before your throne of grace with this church family, Lord, we humbly ask if there is anything between you and us, any adultery, any sin, would you forgive us, Lord Jesus? Lord, we desire right now, and we indeed will act on repenting from whatever it is. Lord, we recognize these days are short, the times we live in are growing increasingly difficult. We ask, Lord God, that you'd give us the strength of mind and heart 
to choose to live lives of purity and faithfulness and obedience to you. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you more than we ever believed we could possibly need you. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for your forgiveness. Strengthen, embolden, renew, make us alive in Jesus Christ. Make us sons and daughters of light. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' strong name, God's people said, Amen.